Maybe the ideas are there, it's just they're not sexy because we live in an age where the only thing that gets us now is affect and emotion. Well, if we had the answer but it wasn't sexy enough, then we wouldn't have the answer. The answer has to be sufficiently sexy. Yo, what's up? Welcome to Owls at Dawn, the end of the year holiday special. We are just two dudes from Southern California who studied philosophy, politics, and religion around the world and decided to start a podcast where we could bullshit with impunity. I am Austin Hayden Smith. And I am Troy Polidori, and I'm back. And we we are back in full force, and Troy is really back after I did him dirty at two Brute and stabbed him uh, by having a, a guest on to talk about basketball. Were you totally offended or just minorly offended? No, I mean, I was raging. I was listening to it. Not only because <laughs> it was a discussion about basketball, but because it was a good discussion about basketball. <laughs> and I wanted, I kept finding myself raising my hand to chime in, then realizing, oh, wait, I'm not on this podcast. I have been summarily kicked off of this podcast. So. Oh, no. Yeah, I was raging the whole time, but you're forgiven because it was quality content. So you know, if it was some okay. you know, shitty content, then I would have raged in a way that would have been unforgivable. But this was different. This was a, uh-huh. a a justified rage that then came back into reasoned acceptance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and like I said, man, it, that was just ammunition, like a for you to kind of store up, and then you can just unload over both Adam and me at some future point. So oh, I, I have so many takes, especially with the hardened stuff that's going on right now. So uh, it's, I know it's it's interesting, right? So if you guys missed that, a good discussion about basketball that also got into some interesting like political and social shit. Make sure to go check that episode out. Of course, we have a full backlog too. I don't know why I'm telling you this. Obviously, we have a backlog because this is episode like 100. Well, I don't even know what episode this is, but it's over 140 something. This is what episode is 140 right now. Yeah. Oh, 140. Look at that madness. Anyway, what we're gonna do this week uh, is we're going to be doing our holiday special slash end of the year special episode where we're basically just going to talk about our shitty minutes and our sticky leaves for those of you who aren't as familiar with our whole setup um, the shitty minute is where one of us gets to rant and rave about something that's pissing us off sticky leaves are where one of us gets to recommend something that is bringing us meaning in a potentially meaningless universe and so this episode we're basically just going to be talking about those ranty and sticky things that are grounding us or setting our hair on fire one of the two so what else troy what, what do the people need to know yeah i would just say that you know the shitty minute if you're if you've listened to the show before the term minute is an elastic term right <laughs> even in the best of times so it's going to be even more elastic of a term here since we're doing our <laughs> kind of like collective end of year shitty it's like shitty of the year sticky of the year so uh right. we'll see how long it goes we have no idea but uh it, it might be a little bit um a little bit more abstract a little bit more general and, and even more sort of um all over the place than we normally are which is saying something yeah, now if someone were going to rant about something in the year 2020, what could they possibly rant about, Troy? What do you think people would rant about? Does your shitty minute have anything to do with the pandemic? Well, of course it does. But we're not just going to say, like, the pandemic is the shittiest thing. And also, 
I take offense to anybody who says that they're like shitty thing of the year or whatever it is that they're going to rage on if they were doing Festivus or something else is the virus. Like the virus is just, I mean, is it alive? Is it not? It's a philosophical question asked the philosophers of biology, right? But like, it certainly doesn't have like the ability for intentional action, right? So I'm, you can't blame the virus for anything. It's just doing its thing. It can't do otherwise really, right? So don't blame the virus. Don't say the virus is the worst thing about 2020. Something else has to be, right? Um, and I also don't want to say the pandemic is because that's just too abstract, too general, too obvious. So it has to be something a little bit more concrete and maybe a little bit more unique to the discussion than what everybody else is talking about as being the worst thing of the year. You agree? So this is – yeah, this is like two – you just gave us two shitty little rants. One rant against people who blame the virus and a rant against people who blame the pandemic because it's too abstract. So you just got like two bonus – there's like two bonus little shitty rants right there too. That's just how right? we do. Like a couple of quick little layups before I go on to you know, some longer plays. Okay, well, okay, the, the court is yours. Draw up the plan, execute the thing. What is your first shitty, or I guess, because we're just going to do one each, right? One long one each. So what is your shitty of the year? So we were actually just talking about this before we started recording, but um, the thing that sort of plagued me, especially during the second wave of this virus where things have been um, so much worse, uh, especially in the, the two areas in the States where I have lived, um, one in the South, one in L.A., happen to be the two areas where the virus seems to be uh, humming the most right now mm. um and it, it and there's so so many things to, to complain about so many things to rage about but what really gets me is i can't put my finger on what it would take f- to actually energize um people in america towards enough mm. dissatisfaction with their country all of its institutions public and private um, to the point where they'd be willing and upset enough to, I mean, I don't, I don't want to say a revolution in the sense of like a violent revolution, because I don't think violent revolution is, it's hardly ever a good idea, right? Like you literally have to have death as being the only other option. Um, mm. But revolution in a softer sense, right? Like saying something like the whole system is fucked, the whole thing needs to be reset. Some kind of mindset that has this sense that everything is going wrong and, and everything is to blame, right? You can't just right. like take one person out of the picture. You can't just take Trump out of the picture. You can't just take whomever out of the picture. And then all of a sudden things will be healed. Right. Right. And I, and I do think that that level of dissatisfaction seems to be like have permeated throughout the country. Uh, we were talking before we were recording from talking to the few normies that I know um, and my family and elsewhere during the holidays, conservative, liberal, whatever, apolitical, the, the normies also seem to have this sense of, damn, like this country sucks. Like everything about it, like as a whole, not individual people, not individual groups, not the president, not the CDC, not you know any microcosm. It's just like the whole thing sucks. Like the whole, the whole system as a whole, the way it's set up to function, it's functioning. Right. It's, it's not, it's malfunctioning in a, in a major way. Like it's broken, right? That kind of like um, analysis. And that's good, I think. Like that's a level of dissatisfaction that should we should have had for a long time. It just happens to be the case that a lot of people don't sort of see that malfunctioning on a day-to-day basis. Um, that's invisible to them. And now it's not. It's visible to everybody, right? Everybody has to stay home. Everybody's affected by it. Um, and that's good, but it seems like that's not enough because that sort of dissatisfaction... Uh, that sort of sort of you know really awakened analysis of what's wrong with the country it just stops there right it just stops at yeah this fucking sucks and then i guess i'm just gonna stay home and be upset about it right mm. um 
And that might not be a universal thing. I don't know. I don't know a lot of people, so I don't want to take my small sample and just, um, you know, enlarge it to be uh, an analysis of everybody in the country. But it seems like that dissatisfaction is has permeated. And as we were talking about before we started recording, that seems to be a necessary condition of whatever mm. kind of change has to happen, but not a sufficient one. Because it does not automatically lead towards whatever the means are towards achieving that sort of sort of change. And we were saying before we were recording, you know, as much as there's, um, as much as this is insufficient for real institutional change, a mindset like the people of France have, which is like sometimes you just got to burn some shit, sometimes you just got to go into the streets, sometimes you have to have a mass general strike, you know, whatever, right? Yeah. That even seems a bit utopian um, compared to what we're seeing here, which is just everybody's really fucking upset and no one knows what to do about their being upset. And that worries me as far as like, is that just going to be all that sort of dissatisfaction and anger and hatred and um, all those negative emotions? Are they just going to be like channeled against families, like in, like internecine stuff um, mm. and relationships and families amongst friends? I mean, to yourself, like, you know, suicides and depression and stuff going up, drinking going up, um, all destructive behavior. That's worrisome, man, because if, if people don't feel like they have any way to change the system at large, then they're just going to channel up all that negative energy and spread it amongst them, you know, the people around them and themselves. And mm. that's a dark picture of the future, you know, if it's really that impossible to change things. And certainly there's no sense, it seems like from, you know, Congress and the higher ups that, that, that they're threatened in any way by how dissatisfied and upset people are, right? They're just like sitting on their asses, not passing stimulus bills because they don't feel threatened whatsoever um, by what's happening. Right. So. I mean, even, for, even like, you know, in France, the one the one reason why you burn some cars is because then Macron gets on TV and says, I'm sorry, here, I'm reversing it. <laughs> I'm fixing and I'm fixing and I'm sorry, I'm sorry, you know. Um, I, can you imagine, like, Mitch McConnell <laughs> doing that? Whoops, reversing course, sorry about that, you know, as soon as there's some, like, you know, general strike or a threat of one. You just yeah. I can't imagine shit like that. The, I guess the last time we saw well, that was when the, was it the air traffic controllers thought about not coming in um, a couple of years ago during the government shutdown? Do you remember that? No, I mean I vaguely, vaguely do. It, refresh my memory. I think it was like the head of the union of the air traffic controllers, something like that. Maybe I'm wrong about the industry. They, it was during the government shutdown, and they just the union the union leader just said, you know, maybe we won't show up tomorrow. Like we'll just shut down mm. all air traffic. Mm. And then all of a sudden, Congress the the shutdown ended the next day. Like that was a hint of the kind of power you could have by doing stuff do, like that. But there's just nothing like do that you going think on right now. Yeah, I mean, do you think that that people are so precarious? And I don't know that I I like the designator the precariat to try to like speak about a particular class, but it's a useful designation, I think. But do you think that people are so precarious now that um, the idea of striking becomes sort of out of the question, right? Because we become so attached to needing, and it, it turns into a type of libidinal investment too. Um, where we become so dependent and invested on, um, on, on going to work that our identities are wrapped up in the status quo, the day-to-day, the not rocking the boat, that, that because we have been so um, precariously positioned, that that's what, if you will, saps a lot of our potential oppositional or transgressive vitality, whereas a state like France that has a little bit more of a welfare support system 
um, a little bit more of community protection in place, that that would give them a little bit of freedom to be like, hey, guess what? We can go and do this sort of thing. So there's a sense in which there's a little bit more of capacity, uh, empowerment that is the, that is doled out to such persons. Because I'm trying to think too, and that, I guess that's uh, part 1A of the question, because then part 1B would be, what about like a country like Sweden or Denmark or um, what about in Italy or what about in Portugal or I'm trying to think of other sort of like, uh, quote, developed nations, right? Or what about here in Australia? Um, you know, how do grassroots, organic, democratic uh, workers' actions proceed? And um, and in what sense are they different? And what then could we say are the contextual differences between each of those regimes that either lead to or stifle that type of direct democratic action? Yeah, I mean, I think you're exactly right that there's something there about the fact that um, not only precarity, but also just isolation in your workplace is a big part of it. And most yeah. precarious workers are also, you know, if they're contractors, independent contractors or whatever, they're isolated from other workers. And so even just having, I mean, are all the air traffic controllers going to get onto a Discord and all of a sudden come up with the idea of not coming in tomorrow? No, but if right. the head of the union does, then all of a sudden everyone right. falls in line, right? So there's something about, you know, having that pre that like pre-established organization, obviously a huge factor in it. But in addition to that, I think there's also just a sense that there's a lacking sense that everybody's in this thing together, right? Mm. Um, I don't know if it's like, you know, 80, 20 or 70, 30 or what, but, and there's obviously there's feedback there, right? There are more, the more small organizations you have that are like that and the relationships they have with other organizations, other unions and, and stuff like that, they're going to sort of build each other up and um, produce this sense of, you know, in this togetherness or whatever, but that it's just clearly lacking. There isn't a sense that this is happening to all of us and some people are getting off not only scot-free, but um, they're doing this with complete impunity and, and then a few people getting you know massively rich off of it. And the, the anger that should follow from that is being produced, I think, but it's not leading to anything, right? I mean, people have been extremely dissatisfied with, um, with Congress and with the federal government as a whole for you know long before even this shit started mm -hmm. happening. So... And that just led to sort of resentment and complaining and then, then just moving on, right? Because what are you going to do about it? Yeah, so this yeah, is the... what I wonder. I, I wonder if because we're such a sort of uh, post-Protestant individualistic, we could even say isolated society, I wonder if the way that this manifests is less about, well, we can do something together, but rather it's going to turn into individual resentment um, local-based frustrations. It's going to turn into um, like forms of, of silent, passive-aggressive judgment, and um, it's just going to continue to manifest itself in terms of deeper cultural divides before it turns into some sort of boiling point where people cohere together, right? Like, like one of the things that Sartre talks about that <clears throat> he uses to try to explain what was the catalyst for the French Revolution was that there was a common enemy, a common foe that was imminent, that was going to threaten them with annihilation, threaten them with death, right? And that that's what then caused them to say to the Bastille. That's what caused them to say, oh shit, all of us are one in this particular project, which this project is um, opposing that violent foe. So the question is, is if you don't even have the capacity to one, feel that united threat and then two to recognize that we have a common project then what how does that manifest itself and i wonder if it manifests itself in like 
forms of self-flagellation, Protestant guilt, resentment, etc., etc. And if, if it does that, then that turns into the weak passions that like Nietzsche talks about, right? Because that's what you get with Resentiment, right? And so you get mm-hmm. a sort of like tendency towards the weak passions, uh, passive nihilism, and maybe even like forms of uh, the nihilism where it's like this world is meaningless and then we just kind of start indulging into the fantasy. The fantasy of like the nostalgic weave that you get with like conservatism or the progressive techno-utopian we that you get maybe with liberal liberal progressivism but it doesn't ever turn into a sort of like affirmationism that would then overcome that nihilism that would lead to a type of potency to confront you know yeah and the the means for recognizing that have never been more apparent right there's always some ideological cover you can give towards yeah, the neoliberal ideology is itself the cover for all the violence that is inherent in the system, right? Yeah. Um, from, you know, basically committing whole groups of people to poverty um, to many other things. But when you're looking at the in the face of the government tells you you have to stay home and then is basically threatening you with being evicted and not getting unemployment checks as of, I mean, as of we're recording this, the seamless bill has not been signed yet. And that's all going to happen next week, right? If nothing happens. Yeah. Um, let alone all the other suffering that's happening from people being told that they can't stay home. And then um, oftentimes if they aren't getting unemployment, then they're just shit out of luck, right? Um, Mm. Like what could be more of a double bind, which is like the definition of oppression, right? Here are your options. They're all bad for you, right? Um, And those options have been very clearly restricted by uh, the powers in your life. Like that that is naked oppression, right? Um, Mm. And there's means there for... Uh, a collective sense of being in it together, right? I think there's something that conservatives and liberals and radicals can all like understand about that, right? Um, mm. There's common ground there, but there's there is no sense of that ability to affirm a common project about what to do about it. We can we might all be mad at the same people, but because the reasons are so different and are not overlapping and in, a, in the appropriate way, the the sense mm. of affirming some common project is just it doesn't seem possible right now. Mm. I mean, if you could speculate, knowing as an American and as someone who thinks about this sort of thing a lot and pays attention to these kinds of things, like if you could speculate, what would it take, do you think, for some sort of large-scale, cohesive um, tendency? I mean, did... Did we get that with Occupy? Did we get that with something like Black Lives Matter? Do we get something like that with uh, Me Too and Time's Up? Do we get something like that? And I'm saying something like that because I'm using these things very loosely, right? Because I know that we can criticize some of these movements in certain ways. But forget that. The point being uh, to to have a, a type of common project. And what does a common project look like, right? I think the left sometimes fetishizes the past so much with like industrial action and the age of industrial capitalism where for us the only thing we can think about especially the marxist left right the only thing that counts is the working class uprising together and it's sort of like um avant-garde bolshevik type of activity and it's like okay but Mm -hmm. what does it mean for us in 2020 moving now into 2021 in an informationized world a datafied world um, a world that is completely structured differently. It's a post-industrial world. Um, what does it mean when we look at these other movements that have had some measure of, quote, success in the sense that they've had a, a, a level of power that they've been able to exhibit? So what do we think it looks like moving forward? Um, what could some sort of coherent project be that would be, I don't know, would it be 
would it be something that would have to include um, women's rights, trans rights, race rights, um, et cetera, et cetera, as well as the economic, et cetera, et cetera? Or like, like, what are we talking about here, right? Like, are we just talking about people getting pissed off that we're that we're allowing austerity measures to proceed in the uh, in the time when we should be demanding for infrastructure spending and and things like that? Or like, what is it that we're actually trying to advocate for? And and what would like a speculative potential means or um, what would the, the the structure of that movement look like if we could if we could think about it? I don't know. Are you leading into your shitty minute here? No. Yeah, because I, I don't want to spend too much more time on this. I want to get to your shitty minute. But obviously, if we knew the answer to that, then we you know have the thing solved. We just have to implement it, right? Um, I think, think the real I, or would people just be resistant? Like, are there like really great voices, you know, that are saying, "Guys, this is it," and but people are like, "No, that doesn't make any sense." because it really doesn't exist within our paradigm of knowledge or, you know, like, is this an issue of class consciousness or an issue of, like, self-reflection? We're not adequately seeing ourselves in the problem. Like, is it is it something that's intellectual? Like, you know what I mean? Like, like maybe they're, the ideas are there. It's just they're not sexy because we live in an age where the only thing that, that gets us now is affect and emotion or something like that, which well, that, yeah, will lead I, into my, that will lead into my shitty minute. But no, go ahead. <laughs> well, if we had the answer, but it wasn't sexy enough, then we wouldn't have the answer. The answer has to yeah. be sufficiently sexy, right? That's yeah. just a, a prerequisite. Um, but yeah, I mean, obviously, I think from our point of view, the, the real question isn't what's the answer to the common project that gets everybody on yeah. board towards reforming the system to something equitable and, and reasonable and justifiable. But instead, of the answers that are on the table, um, which of them might work, won't work, could be part of a system that works, probably you're talking about an overlapping system of mm. uh, ideologies and justifications and things, not just a single one that everybody accepts, right? That's probably unlikely. Um, mm. But there are you know, ones that are mutually reinforcing and that are compatible and some that are not, right? And so that's, that there's a whole system of analysis there, obviously, that we'd have to, that we probably spend all of our time in this podcast and, and otherwise thinking about and talking about and, and yeah. seeing how all these things can work together. I mean, you mentioned what it would, um, uh, you know, uh, sort of, uh, racial um, systemic reform and trans rights and stuff like that. Part, yeah, obviously that has to be part of it. I mean, anybody who says that stuff is um, not going to be part of making the system better hasn't recognized the actual symptoms of the problem itself uh, as it currently stands, right? The question would yeah. just be like, is that the first prong of it? Or is that something that's part of the larger system or flows from um, more general or uh, more universal uh, project? Right. Mm. Um, so yeah. yeah, I mean that's, that's a tough question. Like, even if you thought that, yeah, those things are part of a larger universal project, it might be the case that those things have to be addressed first for you know some reason as a condition of establishing a sense of some universal project that that people share. So it's you know super complicated. But I think what we can do is at the very least look at the offers on the table and see which of them are too weak to be effective at all, and which of them are, are part of a, a larger um, project and are. Um, helpful, even if they're not sufficient for itself for achieving a more equitable society. Mm. Yeah. But that's all right. that, right? We should move to your shitty minute. Yeah, cue up my shitty minute now. All right, so my, my shitty minute is, uh, I think, one that you'll be able to kind of um, grieve with me on as well. Um, it is It is the fracturing of the Bernie movement. 
the post Bernie left um, oh, in yeah. the that United States. That makes me so States. sad just to think about what you're going to say. <laughs> yeah, um, particularly just a lot of the infighting that is now going on, um, the the future prospects for something that that I really did put a lot of hope into in 2015, um, but especially even more this year. Um, my, my shitty minute is really just about how, and, and I say this with full force, but also with a somber heart. I'm not boasting in this. I don't find joy in this. Like some people I think online do find joy in this, but the left is dead. And, um, I think it was dead before. Um, I think that, that the Bernie movement was like a last gasping populist attempt to, um, try to do something that was a, a working class based left project, but I think um, that that possibility is dead in the United States at the moment. Could it ever come back? Maybe it's possible, but I think it's dead. And what I mean by that is that I think that the world has changed, and I think that the socioeconomic regimes of production, the socioeconomic, and I don't just mean production in terms of goods and services, but I mean knowledge production, um, I mean affect production, production of emotion, production of our libidinal investments and orientations in and to the world are radically different than they were 100 years ago, 50 years ago, 200 years ago, 500 years ago. And so I think this will actually relate to your shit a minute, the means by which um, subjects can be constituted and galvanized are um, are radically different than they were previously, and they need to be radically rethought. Now, many theorists do this, right? Um, all kinds of theorists have been engaging in what does it mean for a subject to be a subject? What does it mean to call the proletariat the proletariat in an age that is a different world than the age of, you know, 19th century industrial factory capitalism, right? Like, what are these worlds? But um, I think the, the, the particular way um, that we need to go about this is, is even more radically different post-information um, data boom. And um, I think that the shifting forms of the asset economy, the shifting forms of financialization are radically transforming value production. And if you're radically transforming what value is and what value production is, therefore value distribution, I think that changes how you even understand um, the constitution of uh, subjects of value or subjects involved within the value process, right? Or the value form, you might say. So I think that essentially we can say that the left is dead. And I think the way that this is really manifesting itself that just grinds my gears the most is just the online community in terms of infighting. We saw it at a like a, a fever pitch over the last like week with Jimmy Dore becoming somebody that everyone gave a fuck about and him fighting with Jank from TYT and Anna from TYT. And then you've got like Nomiki Konst weighing in and then you've got Katie Halper weighing in and then you got like the Matt Taibis of the world that are fighting with the, these people. And then you got the Glenn Greenwalds that are fighting with these people. And it just seems that there is so much infighting um, and, and, and the way that people are fighting. Now, some of these voices I still respect greatly, so I don't mean to brush them or paint them all with the same brush. Um, but I'm speaking about a particular just form of emotion and affect that you get, especially with like the Jimmy Dore and Jank and Anna Kasparian type of, of form of communication. It, they've all bought into like the YouTube sensationalism, 
media sensationalism stuff. And I think that that's a symptom. I think it's a symptom of something much deeper. I don't just think it's inconsequential or secondary. I think it's a symptom of a certain form of emotional production, which I think relates to, in a weird way, the quantification of reality and value production and emotional labor or affective labor or uh, the investment economy. And I think that these things are all indications that, um, that any sort of actual material transgressive activity cannot take place within or via those forms. And I think that all those forms do is only feed into the acidization and financialization of the economy because those forms of affect are one expressions of a financialized logic um, because it just uh, stokes up more libidinal investment into these platforms and these channels that are increasing their valuation as more drama is stirred up. Um, and then two, I think it just feeds into it further because it's just spreading that form of sensationalism that itself is already enclosed within a logic of uh, quantified valuation. And therefore, I think it's only just uh, reproducing and perpetuating a logic that is essentially not going to be in any way uh, a contestation to the hegemon. So I just think that at the moment, I don't know, and I don't know how true this is or if this is just a lament from me, you know? Sometimes lamentations aren't analytically or descriptively accurate. They're just kind of an expression of where my heart is. And for <laughs> me, that's how I just feel. I feel that the left is dead. Uh, it breaks my heart because I really did buy into the possibility of uh, a Bernie presidency, and I thought that maybe meant that there could really be something that would take place at the uh, at the levels of politics and at the level of society. You know, the whole not me, us kind of slogan where he turns around and says, you know, would you be willing to sacrifice yourself for your neighbor? That logic, that rhetoric is so radical for um, a political slogan. And I think that... Um, it just breaks my heart and it makes me really sad that I think that that type of authentic um, and and grounded, materially grounded, and I don't just mean in terms of stuff again, because as Troy and I constantly talk about, you know, um, emotions and desire and relations are material, right? But that type of material project, uh, that universal material project seems to be at the moment impossible. And so that really breaks my heart. So that's my shitty minute. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I share everything about your lamentation. Uh, I feel like Jeremiah on the hill, right? Yeah. Um, do you think, I have a few things to say, but first, do you think a big lesson to take from this? I mean, I think it was it was understandable for, for many of us in the left, I think this is almost universal on the left, to think that the Bernie movement was such a surprise, right, back in 2015, and also evidence of some growing left movement over the last four years, uh, four to five years, right? Do you think you look back on that now and say, it, maybe there was a surge there, certainly, but it, it didn't have, um, it was more ephemeral. Like it was a surge that had no ground to it because it was led by kind of a celebrity movement. And it was a lot about people sort of associating themselves with a Bernie or an AOC or a whomever, right? Whatever yeah. Twitter leftist figure that they love. And because it didn't have that actual foundational grounding, um, that's why it can be just summarily killed as easily as an Obama phone call um, sometime during the primaries that just 
ended the whole thing in one fell swoop and that it was so easy right it was like uh that scene in indiana jones right where the uh Arison ford comes across the guy who's like showing off all his sword skills and then he just shoots him and it's like yeah the left <laughs> just had a sword and the the neoliberals had a gun what are you gonna do um do you think it's like that would you have a more pessimistic uh view in retrospect or is that sort of missing something important about what happened in the last five years i definitely think that's part of it right because that's what you're seeing now with like people who who were like really hot on aoc before and now they aren't right and it's like well was it just that you bought into the cool brand and remember we talked about this i talked about this as soon as aoc became a thing i was like she's being fetishized because of like she's a brand kind of thing and this is one of the the problems this is what i mean though that there is a sort of knowledge regime that is sort of um it's like pre-interpreting not reinterpreting pre-interpreting how it is that a figure that could potentially be a radical figure but it's pre-interpreting it's pre-enclosing the possibility to even uh, appropriate or embrace or encounter that person within a certain kind of like you talked about the celebrity idea or there's a certain type of emotion or there's a certain type of sensationalism and it's manifest through like excitement and through podcast episodes and through blogs and through tweets and through t-shirts being made and stuff like that. And I think it really, um, it, it sort of like lends itself to already being um, incapable of potentially being a, an event or something like that that would radically tear a fabric in the serial relations that are already kind of constituting the social fabric. And so what you end up getting is a sort of a mimetic reproduction of the same societal tendencies, even when you get somebody like Bernie or AOC or um, the squad, right, that are saying maybe potentially radical things. Now, here's the other thing I want to say, though. That doesn't mean that there isn't real shit going on. Like, I do think that there is real transgressive, oppositional uh, thought, action, emotion, libidinal investment, desire production taking place, right? So I want to – everything that I just said isn't to the negation of the possibility of those kind of real oppositional forces being in play. The question is, is what allows them to go from possibility – to actual instantiated power and I think that's the difference and I don't think I don't think that right now there's there's much recourse for that shift to take place right and so the question is 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 could it build in a different way and I think it must build in a different way so that it can kind of coalesce together into something that becomes a real material oppositional power but this is the other problem the only way that will happen is if we get our analysis right and it's not just you know celebrity branding and stuff like that but I think that we fundamentally misunderstand how capitalism operates. Or I don't even think this is capitalism anymore, to be frank. I, I think that Mackenzie Wark is right. Um, I think that other theorists are right. I think this is something beyond capitalism. I think uh, Evgeny Maratsov writes about you know the neo-feudal asset economy. I wrote something on this, if people are interested, for uh, the Progress and Political Economy website on like uh, uh, in the year of our Bernie. It was over a year ago that I wrote this thing now. But what is facing us on the horizon isn't just simply the contradictions of capital. So I don't think that the opposite of capital is the worker. I mean, I agree with like the value form Marxists who would say that the working class isn't some sort of vantage that is oppositional in some sort of necessarily productive contradictory position to capital. Um, as a matter of fact, there's a sense in which uh, the production, the proletarianization of society actually benefits and feeds into capital. That doesn't mean that there aren't points of tension 
But those points of tension under the regime of finance, under the regimes of datafication, under the regimes of the information economy are so easily incorporated and enclosed and reinscribed into the logic, the hegemonic logic of the socioeconomic regime that to actually build from those points as supposed points of like the interstices that can build genuine opposition, um, that those things become sapped of any vitality even before they get recognized because as soon as you recognize it, you've already recognized, right? You've recognized it, but from within the position of the hegemonic knowledge regime, uh, a logic of uh, of knowledge, you know what I'm trying to say, from within the perspective of the kind of like dominant hegemonic um, knowledge regime, right? So that means that it's already sort of incorporated um, into the very system that it's putatively meant to be some sort of opposition to. Uh, in opposition to. And so I don't actually think it is really genuinely oppositional. And I think this is because we get our analysis wrong. And so we need to really understand the finance economy and how it is that I think this is where Michelle Fair's work is so important. How it is that societies, the, the, the battle isn't between capital and wages anymore, if it ever was. It's about um, what he calls rating, right? The rating of a nation's uh, bond valuation, the rating of a corporation's stock value, the rating of a person's what he calls reputational value, right? That everything is about the management of portfolios. And if we understand portfolio management, then we know that risk and uncertainty and exposure to the quote elements is not a threat that threatens the system. It's just something to be mitigated so that you can find a balance in your portfolio so that you can actually price risk. So like, Climate change isn't going to be this thing that somehow necessarily disrupts the economy because they have catastrophe bonds that are literally derivatives on whether an asteroid's going to hit the world or whether rising sea levels are going to displace <laughs> millions of immigrants around the world. They're going to benefit from this to the tune of trillions of dollars over the next 50 years, right? So we can't just assume that those things are going to be the kind of panacea that is going to present the alternative. We have to really understand how to fight within that regime. And what does it mean? It means, okay, if it's about value production, value distribution, and participation and return on the investment of those who produce the value into the system, then we have to figure out where is value produced and how is value produced under this particular regime and then figure out ways to make sure that the allocation of the resources of value fit within this new regime. And I just don't think that there's much recourse to that from within the, the, the kind of typical narratives that were fed. And so I think that's a big, a big point as well. Sounds like a reevaluation of values. At it a is sort of almost metaphysical level. I a hundred percent it is a hundred percent it is, you know, and there are some people out there that are are thinking about this. But the problem is, is even I, I'm very aware of what I just said is still very abstract, and I'm struggling with how to really come up with ideas that will ground this into something that's 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 a political project you know like i'm very comfortable with talking about this at the level of the theoretical and the abstract but i'm not very comfortable with like what does it mean like does it mean um we've talked about this before but does it mean like social wealth funds right is that mm. what it means or even like adam and i were joking in the basketball regime does it mean like you know that we all becomes like remember we were talking about like the frat boy like investment portfolios does it mean that we become like uh, portfolio <laughs> investment managers or uh, have we already given up have we kind of embraced a logic that, that isn't something we ought to embrace, right? So I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm really struggling to try to find 
the actual socioeconomic, um, I guess, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The, the actual kind of like socioeconomic programs that would, that would be fitting to the, the theoretical abstract analysis that I'm talking about. I don't really know, you know? Like, I really like the work of Matt Brunig in exploring social wealth funds. I really like the work of Cernick and Williams who are talking about UBI in a post-work world. I, I really like um, the work of, uh, 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 of, like, Helen Hester and, like, talking about the importance of care work. I really like these, these things, um, these bold sort of, like, more uh, futurally oriented social programmatic um, uh, uh, kind of like forms of politics and society. But I just don't know. Like, I'm afraid to like throw my hat in with any of them fully because I'm like, uh, are they the right project? Which is then maybe my own sort of, maybe I just need to like, it doesn't need to be the right project, but just a good project. I, You know, I, I don't know. But I feel a little bit hesitant, but what's the word I'm looking for? A little um, impotent, I think, to to, to throw my hat into one of those projects because it's like, well, that's not going to work or that's not going to be good enough or that's not going to please everybody or these people over here aren't going to be satisfied with that. And and so I feel like I'm constantly just hedging and qualifying everything and, and maybe that's also a problem, you know, um, and that you need to just at some point be like, no, you just have to like fucking be forceful and do something. Even if it's not the perfect project, it's a good project, you know? Yeah, I and mean, that's a social psychology problem, right? I think the the, the issue is that when you make broad socioeconomic changes, you don't just change the structure of the system in which all individuals react, right? Which is kind of the assumption when people make projections. Like if you, you know, instituted Medicare for all, here's how it, it will affect pricing changes and spending changes and everything else, right? You actually right. transform the individuals and their values themselves with broad yes. socioeconomic change, right? Institutional change begets individual change from within the system and so if you you know a person who grows up in under a welfare state is going to have different values than one without a welfare state and someone with a you know much more broad sort of socialist state is going to have different values than someone without it the same exact person right in different circumstances um and so we can't predict exactly what change is going to happen with these kind of ideas because we don't know what the persons even ourselves will be like under that uh, new regime right so we we can't really make um confident predictions about that and that just means i mean and i think that the um the actual effects of broad socioeconomic change in the past sort of prove this we just got to kind of just jump off the plank and see where we land you know mm. um and like new deal stuff it's just like dude shit is whack we need to do something let's just do this like we think this could be beneficial we'll find out right you kind of mm -hmm. just have to do it and then you know um do as much analysis as possible and figuring out what the effects are but you can't be fully confident that it's going to satisfy everybody or it's going to um, not have unintended consequences and stuff like that um I'm, I'm reading uh kim stanley robinson's ministry for the future right now and i'll talk about it more in a later podcast but uh, it's brilliant and I love it and I'd actually love to um, talk about it with you if you ever want to read it but um, it, it, it talks a lot about these ideas of just what if we did these kind of broad socioeconomic changes how would, what would be the effects both good and bad without having some like utopian sense that everybody would be perfect and live in harmony and kumbaya together um, yeah. and that's just the kind of shit we got to be thinking about because uh, that's the kind of change that has to happen.
and, yeah, and, and to and expect I, that not won't all no, be go, positive. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Just, well, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, and people are, you know, they are talking about Medicare for all and they are talking about uh, real kind of material things, $20 minimum wage. I mean, I live in a country right now where the minimum wage is like 20 bucks, but like if you're over 21, I think the minimum you ever get paid is like 25 bucks an hour. And you can, you can make a, you can survive. Like you're not going to be rich and yeah, you know, real estate prices in fucking Sydney are ridiculous. You'll never become a homeowner and rents are getting more ridiculous. But like if you work in a cafe, you can survive. If you work in the, the Aldi, you can survive. You're not glamorous, but you can survive. It's not the same way in the United States. If you're making minimum mm-hmm. wage in Los Angeles, what is it? Nine bucks an hour, 10 bucks an hour. You're not and, and real estate's like pretty much comparable in terms of purchasing power as it is here in Sydney. That's more than half or uh, that's more than 50% less, right? Like you're not going to survive. You can't do it. So like I, I understand the value of a $20 minimum wage in material terms and people are advocating for that. I think my problem is, is that it's already packaged within like this framework that only feeds into the furtherance of a system that, that we need to figure out what are the real choke points right and i don't think that the choke points take place at the uh, at the levels that so many people on the left um think it does right i think we need to kind of not abandon the capital v wage fight i don't think we need to abandon that but i think we need to figure out okay we need to sort of the whole basis of marx's analysis of capital is based on the value form value production value distribution um you know, the, the extraction and accumulation of surplus value, the centralization of the power that uh, accords with that. What does that mean in an age where value is produced via financial, datafied, informationized mechanisms? And the problem is, is the Marxists, the traditional Marxists, people like Kostas Lapovitsas that write about like money and stuff like that, they think that, that finance doesn't produce, that it that it creates profits, but it, that it's not actually producing. Whereas I definitely think that that's wrong, and so I think that a lot of the post-Keynesian analysis of like uh, of of the centrality of money are extremely important to understand how it is that um, the current economy, the financialized economy, the assetized economy, actually operates. So I think that's one of the issues too. You know, is we kind of need to get our head out of the old world thinking and kind of start to really look at what's happening. And there are a lot of voices that are exploring this. Um, I just think it's so new and it's so difficult to like you've got a couple hundred years basically of people thinking one way and then to try to like shift tack is very difficult you know um and it has to be something that doesn't just seem like it's capitulating as well you know because i think so many mm-hmm. marxists are like marxists are like no 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 we can't go that way because that's just giving up too much you know like we know what the root is the root is workers and uh and this is where the battle has to take place and I don't think that we abandoned that, but at the same time, I think we recognize that it's not an that it's not a sufficient terrain, if you will, for the battle to take place. So, yeah, that's yeah, especially saying. when you talk about the fact that some of these um, broad institutional changes we're talking about, again, they they beget the reevaluation of values um, themselves, right. and so you're talking about um, change in actual values, not the economic level, but at the um, at the actual level of like uh, individual action uh, at that level of valuation. Um, right. So yeah, it's a, it's a very complex system that it doesn't have just uh, change one cog, change one effect, right? It's initial conditions we're talking about. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So um, yeah, that's my shitty. Mean, move to yeah. our sticky Shitties leaves, are yeah. done. <laughs> yeah. Shitties are done. No more ranting. What were you going to say? Sorry, brother. I cut you off. Yeah, no, that's, an, that's enough of that. We got to get to the good stuff.
Okay, alright, alright. So, that's done. Take a couple deep breaths. That's the pessimistic stuff. But what's the stuff that's been giving us meaning now? Let's talk about this year's big, grand, sticky leaves. Now, real quick, we haven't talked about the meaning of sticky leaves in a long time. So, can you just briefly remind people why is it called sticky leaves? And then give us your 2020 sticky leaves. Yeah, so um, Sticky Leaves comes from my favorite uh, novel, which is The Brothers Karamazov by Fyodor Dostoevsky. And in the novel, in one of its most famous interactions, two brothers um, are, one's a Christian, one's an atheist, uh, Ivan and Alexei, and they are sort of going back and forth on meaning in life and um, their various approaches to, to God and faith and stuff like that. And the Christian one asks the atheist one if... Um, if you're, you know, an atheist and you don't seem to, uh, how do you find like meaning in life? How do you, you know, get out of bed the day, out of, uh, beginning of the day, kind of, kind of question. And, and the atheist Ivan says that he finds meaning in small things. And he says when he stomps the sticky leaves on the ground in the morning after the dew has set in, um, mm-hmm. he finds meaning in that. And so it seems like a totally meaningless, perfunctory thing, but it's mm-hmm. actually something that he finds worth, you know worth doing, worth valuing in and of itself. So we do our own sticky leaves. We talk about something, usually it's small and perfunctory like that. That's finding, we're finding meaning in that we want to recommend to other people and just talk about for our own sake. I guess this kind of goes against that idea in that if we're having a grand year end sticky leaf, then it's actually a big thing and not Hmm. a small thing like the, you know, leaves on the ground. But never mind that. Just ignore that and go with the flow. Hmm. (laughs) <laughs> so what you got what is giving you meaning at the end of this year brother so it's pretty simple but i think one thing that i've really um come to find over the last nine months that we've been on you know off and on kind of lockdowns and and myself i've basically um i haven't been to to school slash work um since march mid-march and um basically only um see the person that i live with and people at the grocery store every couple of weeks and that's pretty much it maybe some people in drive throughs and um, sufi and sufi he is a person i will i will die on that hill um i thought i mean if you were to sort of say who's the person best equipped personality wise and emotions wise to deal with this situation well it would probably be me is that fair to say well Yes, except that I know that when you were in Scotland, because you kind of had a similar sort of isolating experience, you didn't love it, right? Yeah, no, that, that's Remember? very true. Yeah, yeah. There was so a winter I, I, you, where I basically didn't leave for two months. Yeah, yeah. And so if I didn't know you already, yeah, I would say, oh my god, Troy is just gonna fucking hunker down in his room and read and spend time with the people that he loves inside, and he gets enough human connection that way. And yeah, he can't go outside and play basketball with the homies, but that's okay. Like he'll he'll make it work because he can totally indulge the introverted side that he has. I would have thought that. But I do remember you saying, and I was really surprised when you said, yeah, Scotland was great, except for that you were like, man, it was just brutal where you're just kind of like locked away working on your dissertation and shit like that. And it was just like, nah, you know, and it's cold and you're in fucking Aberdeen where the sun doesn't ever shine and the city is (laughs) granite and dark and it just reinforces that. So if, if I didn't know about that personal experience, then I would agree with you. So I'm not totally surprised i think where uh, with where you're going 
Yeah, I think that's that's exactly right. It's a pretty similar experience, except elongated. It's not just a few months; it's been nine months, right? And in addition, it's also like you feel like the world's crumbling around you. It doesn't exactly help, um, right? The the experience. So yeah, um, I've found that, and, and everyone who knows sort of you know basic uh, psychology of personalities and stuff knows this: introversion and extroversion is a spectrum, right? No one's fully introverted right. or fully extroverted. So even introverts have to have some sort of um, personal connection and experiences interpersonally in order to be recharged and stuff. And, you know, I kind of went into this whole thing expecting I'll compared to everybody else relative to other people, probably I will thrive, you know, not in comparison to what I would be otherwise, but in, you know, relative to everybody else. And I don't think my work has suffered or anything like that, but I do know that motivation to finish off this last semester was, uh, lacking compared to any other experience I've ever had. Uh, it was very hard to not have interactions with students in the classroom, very hard not to have interaction with your colleagues um, and with your close friends and uh, and family. Obviously, I haven't seen my family in over a year. So um, I've, I, I'm surprised actually by how much it's affected me and that every single person needs other people even the most mm. introverted um, and uh, people who thrive in isolation among us, we even need uh, people too. And even even though we need it for less time than other people, and I certainly don't want to be like living with a group of seven people for weeks at a time or anything like that, <laughs> uh, I still need to be around other people that share my values. And you I mean, you don't want to be back in the commune? Is that what you're saying, bro? Yeah, I, I can't do that shit, man. <laughs> can't do that shit. Those days have passed. I mean, those days, they didn't even work when they were happening, so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, but Yeah, man. I mean, I, people, people are great, and you mm. need them, no matter how much you might think otherwise. And so, I just want that back, man. Yeah. I just want people back. Fuck, man. It makes me a little teary-eyed. Um, it is... It is tough. I have experienced a little bit of survivor's guilt being in Australia. Yeah, um, right? <laughs> yeah, because it's pretty damn normal here, you know? Um, I'm currently, I don't know, you might even be able to hear people in the background, so if people can, I'm sorry. I'll, I'm trying to be isolated. I'm down in the office of uh, a friend where uh, there's about eight of us on holiday up in this little beach town and then now we're even going to go a bit further up the coast for like a little surfing a surfing christmas new year's holiday but that's because you know like we had a little bit of a flare-up just recently but it was 28 cases that caused everyone to freak out now that went from zero to 28 but we had zero community transmissions for like three weeks prior to that zero so in in sydney which is a uh, which is a city of like 3.3 million or something like that 3.5 million we had zero community transmissions we had a couple cases but they were all from like international people people coming in and they had really good protocols and we're isolating them and stuff like that so for me it's been totally different you know and i forget sometimes because you know i'll casually instagram something like when i'm out at this place that we have called the office in the city where i or in the particular suburb where i live in sydney called manly which is a very beachy town and people are just sitting on the grass in the beach drinking beer and hanging out and people on Insta are like what no social distancing no masks what's going on I'm like oh yeah I forget like where you are it's fucking brutal and you guys can't have that freedom so I've experienced a little bit of that and I think 
I think for me, by by what I am experiencing is I am experiencing my friends and my family who all they can talk about is this type of frustration that you're expressing now, you know? And it really makes you think like, oh shit, like being around human beings, like seeing somebody face to face, touching other people, hugging people, you know, shaking somebody's hand, giving somebody a fist bump, you know, what throwing a basketball to a human being across from you that is 10 feet away from you, like that level of, of exchange, that material exchange is so crucial and so important and it's so beautiful. And it, it breaks my heart that like so many people are affected the way that they are because that stuff is taken away, you know? Yeah, just to compare, you were saying 28 cases in all of Sydney or just of Manly? Uh, no, no, and that was in all of Sydney. Now, they were all related to that cluster that broke out there. Now, it did come up to 108. It, it, the last I checked, that was like two days ago. It did go up okay. to 108, but it was 28 cases when they went into like full on, like, okay, locking down, we're doing this, three days of lockdown so that we can actually enjoy our Christmas, right? So they did that. They implemented these really strict rules. The community all came together, and now it's it's they've found out because so many people have been tested now that actually 108 people, and I think 104 of them, were related to this one cluster that broke out in the Northern Beaches area. But yeah, 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 that, that was the total yeah. though. So yeah, never mind the fact that there's actually like effective government action and a lockdown and compliance and contact tracing and everything contact else to tracing, actually find yeah, out exactly. where the clusters are, none of which is happening here. Uh, my state, which I think has about maybe two and a half to three times as much as the population of Sydney, yeah. um, had 6,000 and 10,000 cases in successive days last time I checked. Wow. wow. Um, yeah. So it's a little bit different. <laughs> yeah. 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 Exactly. Yeah, that's... And that's with a positivity rate of like 20 to 25%, so not even close to actually efficient uh, or enough testing. And uh, Yeah, 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 exactly. So it's, it's, it's totally, it's totally different. So I have definitely experienced that survivor's guilt. So like I can't even, like when I talk with my mom and my aunt, and they're much more isolated at the moment, you know? Like they like to, my aunt is really social with going out with her girlfriends and stuff like that. And she hasn't been because she has COPD. Um, she's got all kinds of other like health issues that make her a little bit worried that she would be at high risk. So she's not seeing them as much. And I can feel it when I talk to her that it's mm. like, there's a despair. It's not even a frustration anymore. It was frustration at first, but now it's just a, a helplessness and a despair. And it's because being around human beings is amazing. Like being in the theater or going to a live concert or going to a restaurant where there's just background noise. Like as silly as it sounds, all that shit is so beautiful and so important and so necessary, you know? So... I don't know. It does hurt my heart to see the people that are that are really being affected by having that all taken away. You know, it it really does hurt my heart, and it fucking and I know that just sounds like oh yeah, you can say that comfortably while you're on a fucking surf holiday with a bunch of friends. I know it fucking sucks, and I swear to God, I I have like survivor's guilt, and it's ridiculous. You know. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of pessimistic things I want to say about. Um, <laughs> how this should how the, the justified anger people should have not only at yeah. their government but at their fellow citizens but this is sticky leaves so we're not going to do that that's right um i really hope that and this is you know this is a bit of a hallmark moment but it's justified i think yes i, I really hope that this is a thing that we remember and that mm. you know people who went through 2020 and it's a you know it's got a branding type of title to it right 2020 um yeah can remember not it's obviously not the same thing as like the great depression or the world wars or anything like that not even close right in terms of devastation and loss 
But at the very least, there's something like a minor traumatic moment in all of our collective histories. And we can look back on that and hopefully that spurs us to remember how much we value these things that we often take for granted. Yeah, it's a you know Dickensian thing, whatever. Um, but it doesn't make it less true, I think. Hmm. Yeah. I, I think that we will remember it. I mean, I think that the forces of... Uh, to go back to the, the previous language that I was using, the forces of... of emotional and libidinal value production will do a damn good job of covering over it um but i think that people will remember maybe at an unconscious level i think i don't think there's any going back let's say we will never return to normal just like the generation after the great depression even in the the 1950s when everything was fucking rosy in the golden age of capitalism it only makes sense built upon the low of World War II and the lows of the Great Depression and the lows of the interwar period and, and World War One, right? So I don't think we'll ever forget it in an objective sense, right? Maybe subjectively, psychologically, it won't be on the forefront of people's minds, but it will always be there as a specter, haunting and, the, and producing, yeah. The, the real battle's gonna be when that, you know, that the Will Ferrell, Maya Rudolph movie, Quarantine, that we're predicting is gonna happen yes. in about yes. a year or two. You know how, like, Baudrillard said, was it the Gulf War never happened? Yes. Right? Because it was a media spectacle? Um, yeah. It'll be that the corn, that the lockdown 2020 never happened. Because we'll just remember <laughs> it through the mediator of the Will Ferrell movie. And it'll actually be, like, this kind of heartwarming slapstick Zany. moment. Oh, yeah, remember exactly. those weird times when we couldn't go home for Christmas, but at least we got on Zoom together and our drunk gr uncle fell over and he didn't know how to use the computer and his finger was over the, <laughs> the camera hole and you only saw his the top of his forehead. Ha ha ha, isn't that so funny? Yeah, that's what it's yeah, going to end up being. No, no mention of 500,000 people who will have died uh, no. when it's all said and done. Um, and yeah. so, yeah, the battle will be trying to, to make sure that that doesn't become our collective memory. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think you're right because when it does, I think what you're talking about, the sort of like um, the the kind of like uh, brushing aside of the severity, that's precisely one of those tendencies that I'm talking about. That's the capacity of the particular uh, framework of think of thinking and uh, of orienting ourselves in into the world. That's its capacity to to reinscribe something, which is to basically change its meaning, right? To to give it a new interpretation, and that's what's going to happen. The three hundred thousand or five hundred thousand deaths, the millions of deaths worldwide, it's going to be reinscribed into. Hey, wasn't that just a little bit weird? Yeah, it was kind of shitty, but that's okay. You know, or weren't there moments of humor in it? And wow, didn't we learn some really good things about the human spirit and how great our infrastructural systems are and how if we just come together? No, 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 no. Let's not excuse it away. Let's not justify it, right? That's some theodicy. That's capitalist theodicy bullshit, right? To rationalize it and then to justify it, you know? Fuck that shit. Don't do mm -hmm. any of that. It was yeah. inevitable, we did the best we could, and we got through it, and there were some hijinks along the way, and don't we feel better about all that? That's right, yeah. yeah. And remember how how sexy Dr. Fauci was, and his little squabbles <laughs> that he had with the orange president. No, no, let's stop trying to find the kind of levity in all of it, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Alright, so what's your sticky leaf for the year? Alright, man. So, you know a little bit about this. I haven't talked about it too much on the podcast, but a little bit. I started talking about it briefly with a Sticky Leaves a few, maybe a couple months back. But I have gotten back into the theater, my friend. Um, I've never really left. But since this podcast has been up, because we've been up for about four years now, 
I haven't been in front of the camera or on stage. I did one acting job in terms of like voiceover. Um, and then you and I actually did a little voiceover thing. Shouts, shouts to that. By the way, that was fun. <laughs> Um, but no, I haven't been pursuing acting like I previously have in previous stages of my life, right? Um, I kind of got into the production side, and I've been doing a lot of uh, stuff behind the camera or behind the scenes, you know, obviously the work with Wisecrack and doing podcast production work, but I haven't done anything properly acting. And for me, my first love has really always been the stage, right? Like, I enjoy doing film work. Um, I've done a lot of film, TV, corporate commercial stuff but um where my soul really gets lit on fire is the stage um and i've done a lot of theater in the past but like i said the last theater show that i did was actually um was it rent i did a a a small little regional uh touring production in scotland of rent before that i did spring awakening i did something at the edinburgh fringe a, a, a sartre play actually but i think the last proper theater production no it must have been the edinburgh what is it no i don't know it was probably around in 2013 the last theater thing i did and then the last proper acting that i did was about yeah yeah dude i mean theater on stage right and then the the last acting i did was about in 2015 when i was back in la um and uh and that was the last acting i had done but i've gotten back into it full force this year and it has just rekindled my love and my passion for it. It's never left. It's, you know, when you sit around a community of actors, especially older actors, they'll tell you, they're like, yeah, it just never goes away, does it? And it doesn't. Um, and I'm so thankful that actually the amazing acting studio that I was a part of in L.A., which is Anthony Mindel's Actor Workshop, that they have a studio here in Sydney. And I have uh, kind of slowly kind of gotten involved with them. And so that's been great. And then... Uh, I just got picked up by one of the top agents here in Australia, so shouts to them. Um, so that's giving me kind of more, kind of kind of like positive motivation to know that oh, actually I I, I can do this and I am good. And um, and then uh, I think I think one of the most important things is that it just it's kind of like an affirmation that oh yeah, dude, like you are good at this. Like this is something that isn't just a, a a pipe dream like this is something that you love and that you've spent a lot of time in but actually you're you're good at this right and to admit that to myself isn't just like patting myself on the back but it's like no there are certain things in life that you're good at and there are certain things you're not good at right like someday i'm just gonna have to realize that troy is just better than me at basketball it's not this year <laughs> but at some point i'm gonna just have to fucking accept that right but I, um, never, sorry just a quick aside i will yeah. never forget the day that you discovered that you needed to have contacts in when you were playing basketball oh, yeah. <laughs> and started draining threes as if you were Steph Curry. I have never been sadder in my life at the thought that, oh my God, I might not be able to beat him anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know. Uh, yeah. But you know, I, I, I'm not very athletic. You know, I can't jump very high. I can't run very fast. You know, I'm just kind of average with all of that shit. I'm just an average, you know, six foot dude i'm not super tall not you know i just have to accept it right but i am very good on the stage i'm very comfortable in front of the camera um obviously i still have uh things to learn and areas that i can pursue to get like into certain depth of emotion with certain characters and to understand script analysis deeper but that's going to be for the rest of my life you know but i I feel like this is kind of like my last chance right not my last chance for stardom i don't mean that because 
obviously would it be great if I had the success of, uh, you know, like a working actor, like, you know, a Chris Cooper would be like the perfect career, right? Where you're not like a household <laughs> name, but like you just fucking do great work all the time. Like that would be the dream, right? Um, yeah, that'd be fuck. I mean, obviously in his later life, he's gotten a lot of award acknowledgement as well, but, um, but just to have a solid fucking career, you know, um, like, yeah, that would be great. Or even just to be like a staple in the local theater community, uh, that does some work in commercial and television every once in a while that's on a TV show, like just to work for the rest of my life, that would be it. But I feel like this is my last chance. I'm in my mid thirties now on that downward slide to 40, you know, and it's like, and I know this isn't true, but this is how I think of it to myself, that this is, I can't do this 10 years from now. If I take another 10-year, like five-year, I mean, it's not 10-year break, but if I take like a five-year break, a 10-year break, and I'm in my mid-40s, could I come back to acting and be like, okay, I'm starting afresh. I don't know if I can the same. I still look, I don't look my age, so I think I've got like a youthfulness on my side that is actually That's beneficial thing, right? to me. I can't imagine you looking 40. Yeah, That's I know. It's going to be weird when you're like 60 and you look 45. <laughs> right? So, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm able to kind of take advantage of that, which is a good thing. And I think that's that's benefiting me. Um, but I still feel like this is it. I've got the energy, right? And and I've got like – I've got – I don't know how much longer uh, people have that energy. I know a lot of actors that are in like their mid-40s and they're like just fucking burned out, right? Because the years of rejection, the years of chasing, stuff like that. I, I have the energy now. So I feel like this is kind of the moment that I'm really going to just fucking do it. And um, so that's been my sticky leaves is that I'm just throwing myself into this. And I'm still doing my philosophical research and things like that. But um, I've always been somebody that's a bit of a, a scatterbrain. But I feel like my two loves are really starting to become more apparent to me. One is like philosophical, uh, political philosophical, social philosophical concerns and research. And then two is acting, particularly in the theater. And so, yeah, that's what's come back for me this year. And and then obviously for people who don't know, that don't follow me on my socials, but um, I'm doing a play, a Sam Shepard play here in Sydney. And there will be a, a stream, by the way, available so people can watch it if they want. It'll be pretty cheap. It's like 12 bucks U.S., it's like 15 bucks Aussie, 12 bucks US. That's like nine bucks UK, 10 euro, whatever it is. So definitely check that out and support support our little show, Indie Theater. But um, So it's called True West. It's by Sam Shepard. You can check us out on Insta. It's True West uh, 2021. True West 2021 is our Insta page. Um, or you can go to the website, truewestsydney.com. But anyway, Sam Shepard is this just brilliant fucking playwright who wrote this play. And I read it earlier this year. And I said, fuck, man, this I could do this. And it's basically a two-hander. There's four characters, but really it's about these two brothers. And I don't know, this play in particular is kind of like the perfect welcome back for me to the stage because it's one of those productions that like every heavy hitter in acting as a dude has done. Philip Seymour Hoffman and John C. Riley famously did a production on Broadway. Gary Sinise and John Malkovich have a production that they've done. Bruce Willis has played the character that I'm going to be playing. Ethan Hawke and Paul Dano recently did it on Broadway. Um, uh, and on the West End... That's like um, you and me, dude. <laughs> yeah, exactly, bro. It totally is, man. Um, it's fucking great. But And, and the two characters kind of are that way, too. You've got like these yin and yang characters, right? But... But the play is also – it's just so rich. It's about the like the decline of the American myth and the, the West, you know, the, the notion of the American West. And, and Sam Shepard to kind of like – this is the last thing I'll say because this relates to it. This is one of the things that is for me so powerful about what the theater is and the stories that, that the theater can tell, right? So Sam Shepard 
um, I listened to an interview with him where he said, you know, a lot of my friends, they wanted to get out of America. You know, they were like cosmopolitans. They were Europeans. They would go to Paris. And, you know, he 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 had a relationship with Patti Smith along in the 70s. He went on tour with Bob Dylan. Um, he ends up being married to Jessica Lange for like 30 years before he passed away just a couple of years ago from Lou Gehrig's disease. But, um, you know, he was this guy who loved Americana. And all of the shit that you and I can talk about the 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 bad stuff about American politics and American culture all the and there's a lot of bad stuff American Empire all of that shit right the the bad stuff of American cultural influence around the world and and exporting like superficial insta cultural regime shit all that stuff we can critique but there's some beauty in America in American history there's beauty in American music. There's beauty in American art. There's beauty in the hills of America. There's beauty, right? And I think one of the things that Sam Shepard is kind of teaching me is, yeah, you can still talk about America critically. You can still try to create art that examines masculinity, toxic masculinity, I guess is what we would call it today. He wasn't calling it that. But you can examine the problematic, traumatic expressions of masculinity. You can examine those things. You know, the post-World War II masculine, the, the, the masculine figure that has been affected by Vietnam. You can examine those things without just simply saying all of it is shit and evil and bad. You can examine American muscle cars, like a 1940 Ford flathead. You can examine that without being like, oh, but it's destroying the environment. You can examine American poetry like a Walt Whitman without being like, oh, but he's just a, a this that feeds into this type of philosophical consumerist thing. You know? And and that's the thing that I'm I'm really starting to actually appreciate by really delving into not just this play, but his work more generally and just kind of being involved back in the theater again is it's it's kind of getting me in my feels a little bit more and kind of allowing me to take off my analytic critical hat a little bit. And sometimes, and that's that's for me, I need both of those things. And sometimes when I'm just indulging in my research, I forget that other side. And so I think that's the thing that the theater, that's why for me I think the theater is so important and so impactful, is that it stimulates that other side of me. And I think maybe I would say with other people too, rather than just the intellectual side. Not that you can't do like fucking analytical critiques and analyses of plays. Of course you can, and I'm doing a shitload of that. But there's also just the sense of just like affirming and enjoying and trying to find the good stuff, right? And I don't know. That's kind of a weird meandering sticky leaves, but that's my sticky leaves. No, I love that, dude. That's um, I'm both really excited about your sort of um, prodigal son return to theater because I know <laughs> how much it brings you joy. And also, I, I've never gotten to see you on stage. So yeah. That'll be kind of a fun thing. I don't think you mentioned the date. It's going to be like the first week of February. Is that when it is? Yeah, so the 3rd through the 7th of February. Um, six performances. So if you're local in Sydney, come check it out. It's at Flight Path Theater, which is in Merrickville. And if you're not local and you're international, we will be putting out details soon for the streaming. And it's not just going to be a live stream because I know there's time differences. So what we're doing is uh, we have a matinee that we're going to be recording. So that will actually work for U.S. time zones. But we're also going to be recording the evening show that night as well. So that'll work for like Europe. But it's also going to be up on um, a website where you can access the video archive for like up to a week after the production. So and it's going to be super cheap. Like I said, like I think it's like 12 bucks U.S. is what it's going to end up being. And then like 10 bucks U.K. or nine bucks, nine pounds U.K., whatever it is, something like that. Yeah, so I can't wait to torrent that. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm just kidding. I'll, I'll pay the money, yo. <laughs> um, 
But also, I, I really also does, does this mean I have to try and make it into the NBA? Like JJ Reddick's about my age. Do you think I can still make it if I worked really hard? I mean, at winter? least to the development league, you know, the development league. <laughs> I think, yeah. yeah, they're looking for people, I think, because a lot of teams didn't show up to the uh, G League bubble. They're doing a little bubble for them. So, uh, yeah, maybe I can make that. Absolutely. This um, is your last chance, man. This is it. <laughs> I, I think my last chance was when I was born. Um, <laughs> but I also really appreciate the sentiment about finding the beauty in America. Because I know that for yeah. me, um, obviously, you know, we're uh, – academics there's a strong bench towards being very critical in america in a way that's oftentimes i think really kind of classist and bigoted against mm, quote-unquote yes. regular people and it's really easy to fall into that when your entire social groups are are people like that even if you don't mean to it's, it's very easy to kind of fall into that sort of bias and you know even just in in sort of um media circles out here i think appreciating the significant significance of someone like dolly parton I think is really important. Yes. Um, getting into the the beauty of country music, um, especially yes. in its kind of heyday in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and just finding like ta- how much I love Towns Van Zant, someone I, I appreciated for a long time since high school, but who I've really come to to love over the last um, couple of years, just seeing his influence everyone, seeing him talked about in a way with reverence out here that, that he doesn't quite receive um, in, in the coasts. And uh, reading Flannery O'Connor, right? Um, and yes. That's not exactly the beauty of America, but it's it's you know there's a sort of darkness that itself is beautiful that uh, the Southern Gothic can produce. So there's there's so much about, and then this is just one little subculture in America, right? It's it's a huge country, and there's a lot of different subcultures right. and then um, and artistic creations and ways of living and everything else that's really beautiful about this country. And we do need, I think, especially academics need to focus a, a little bit more on that. There's just not really a danger from our circles of falling into a romance with America. <laughs> I don't think so. Um, sometimes having a little, fl- little, you know, flights of fancy with American culture are appropriate. Yeah. I mean, this is one of the things I love about Sam Shepard so much is that he is um, in so many ways, a, a cowboy poet, you know, like he will, in one sense, uh, in one in one breath, he'll quote Walt Whitman, and then in another breath, he'll talk about you know like how he would lo- he would rather ride a horse than drive a car, you know, or I'm sorry, ride a horse than ride a plane. He's actually said that he like would never get on a plane. He hated being on a plane. <laughs> He's like I was far, I lived as far away from L.A. as possible. Um, he loved going for long drives in the car. That's why I made sure I, I, I changed it because he actually loved driving in a car alone, you know. Um, he liked to write on a typewriter because it was like tangible in material, you know. Like there's certain senses where he's just kind of a dude and maybe a little bit old-fashioned and want to be on a ranch. But at the same time, he also loves the romance. Like you should hear him talk about Jessica Lang, his wife. And um, it's very much the opposite of the the cynical Lacanian, there is no sexual relation. But it's much more about how these two kind of become one together and how she did something in him and completed something in him, right? Like, I, to me, that just resonates so much because intellectually, I want to be right. So I, I look at these, like, critical analyses and I'm like, that's correct. But in my soul, I am a bit of a romantic, you know? And so to find a voice that sort of echoes both sides of that tension for me is very beneficial and very powerful Mm. and this story true west is about these two brothers and he wrote this play sam shepherd wrote this play 
Um, so he grew up kind of like bouncing around. His dad was in the military. But he and his mom, they settled in a house in Pasadena outside of L.A., and so he wrote this play while his mom was on vacation in Alaska in this house while he was house-sitting for her in the suburbs of L.A. in 1980 is when it was written. And it's about two brothers. And he's even said that basically the younger brother is his version of himself when he was in his first marriage before he met Jessica Lange. And then the older brother, the character that I play, is the fear uh, of the man that he would become. And so the his father was an alcoholic and um, his younger brother was, uh, I'm sorry, the younger brother character is basically um, the kind of like guy that is in Hollywood trying to make it as a writer or in the industry trying to make it out as a writer. And the older brother character is this like wild desert animal who's an alcoholic, who is uneducated, who kind of like blows in from the desert to kind of like come into this world where these two cultures collide. You have the culture of the suburbs being built up. And then you have like the voice of the desert that comes in that sort of destroys everything. And so what you have are these two sides of even himself, the educated writer, brother, and then you have the possible like wild animal um, character, which he uses through the motif of the coyotes, the domesticated city coyotes, and then the wild mm -hmm. coyotes uh, in the desert that howl, right? And those are the, that's like the animal depiction that he provides in this story. And so... The, the, the fact that he explores these two sides of himself, I, I think it really resonates with me too because I've got that one side of me that is like I want to sit down and do my work and do the serious work of thinking and kind of like fit into the system of academia or or, or fit into the system of um, the tradition, let's say, of, of intellectual thought. And then there's the other side of me that just wants to be fucking free, you know, and and explore my passions and follow my passions and kind of be a little bit of a wild animal. Um, but then there's pitfalls with both sides of those things. And so that's why this story, I think, is so rich and so interesting. And it's really challenging me a lot. And I just wrote down, I didn't know who Towns Van Zant was. So thank you for that because I've created a, a true West playlist. I've been listening to shitloads of country <laughs> Western music from like the 50s, 60s, and 70s. So now I've just added Town, Towns Van Zant to that playlist. So I'm super stoked that I have a new resource to kind of delve into. Oh yeah, dude. If you want a, a list of like uh, dark country uh, singer songwriters from the '70s, that's that's my shit. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll have to get um, that from you. But no, that's great though. I'm really excited about about when that when that uh, comes up in February. We'll cool. make sure that we talk about it again and uh, put some shit on that Al's Adam Twitter feed. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll put a little link down in the show notes too to the website and then to the Insta page. So yeah, it's True West Sydney. Dot com and then um, you can check out our insta it's true west 2021 true west 2021 so yeah check that shit out but yeah it'd be sick um i think i think people would really enjoy it too because there's a lot of interesting stuff there about the decline of the west and what does it mean to be the west that's why it's called true west right and i think there's a lot of a lot of different meanings instead of true north right as the compass there's something about america with the the myth of the west as being like the compass that guides the true west but then um but then what does it mean when you actually examine the West through a little bit more of a sort of like critical lens with the decline of American culture, decline of American civilization or the troubles that come with it and these issues of toxic masculinity and stuff like that that kind of emerge as well. So I think that there's a lot of interesting critical stuff there as well for our listeners that they would be into beyond just the sort of like romantic poetry of also trying to find beauty in Americana. So it's both. And I think it's a fucking amazing play. So can't wait. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. All right, so should we uh, should we end this shit there? I think it's a good note to go off yeah. on. Yeah, 
yeah, man. So happy 2021, brother. I'm uh, I'm excited to kind of see where things go in the next year with the podcast. Anyway, I'm sure we'll have plenty of rich conversations and finishing Gabriel finest finally. <laughs> yeah, I'm really hopeful we can do that. <laughs> I know, I know. It might take us to the middle of the year, but one of these days we'll we'll get there. Um, but yeah, dude. Well, enjoy your holidays, brother. Um, to the listeners, I hope you're enjoying your holiday season. Happy New Year. Um, obviously, as always, you can reach out to us with any questions or anything like that. Twitter, owls underscore at underscore dawn. You can email us, owls at dawnpodcast at gmail.com. And uh, we've got our merch up, so you can check that shit out at owls at dawn.com. We've got shirts and tote bags and mugs and things like that, so you can check those things out. Um, what else? Am I missing anything else? Yeah, and I do believe that we have a uh, new Patreon, or not new, but we have a Patreon pull-up, which... Uh, I'm looking at it right now, and it looks like um, we can close it pretty soon. So I'll be looking out for the next Patreon-sponsored episode relatively soon as well. Okay, so what we'll do is this episode will be out like in the next day or two. We'll start off 2021 with uh, a Bill and Ted's uh, Bill and Ted Face the Music, right? Bill and Ted Face the Music episode, and then we'll do the Patron poll, and that's how we'll start off 2021. Does that sound good? Yeah, sounds good. Okay, sweet. Well, thank you so much, everybody. We're done. I think there's only one thing we got to say. Is is there anything else you got to say to close out 2020, Troy? Just one thing I can think that's appropriate, dude. Um, what is that? Dasvidaniya 2020 in Russian. <laughs> <laughs>